Clause 3, Electoral College. The electors shall meet in their respective states, and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all the persons voted for, and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify, and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States, directed to the President of the Senate. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if there be more than one who have such majority, and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president, and if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list the said House shall in like manner choose the president. But in choosing the president, the votes shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. Note, this procedure was changed by the Twelfth Amendment in 1804. In modern practice, parties nominate their electors through various methods, see elector nominations. Then, each state chooses its electors in popular elections. In most states, the party with the plurality of the popular vote gets all of its electors chosen. Once chosen, the electors meet in their respective states to cast ballots for the president and vice president. Originally, each elector cast two votes for president, at least one of the individuals voted for had to be from a state different from the electors. The individual with the majority of votes became president, and the runner-up became vice president. In case of a tie between candidates who received votes from a majority of electors, the House of Representatives would choose one of the tied candidates. If no person received a majority, then the House could again choose one of the five with the greatest number of votes. When the House voted, each state delegation cast one vote, and the vote of a majority of states was necessary to choose a president. If second-place candidates were tied, then the Senate broke the tie. A quorum in the House consisted of at least one member from two-thirds of the state delegations, there was no special quorum for the Senate. This procedure was followed in 1801 after the electoral vote produced a tie, and nearly resulted in a deadlock in the House. While the Constitution reflects the framers' clear preference for the President to be elected by a constituency independent of the Congress, one of the most palpable limitations created by the stipulation that electors meet in their respective states as opposed to a single venue was that given the constraints of 18th century technology there was no practical means for that constituency to resolve deadlocked elections in a timely manner, thus necessitating the involvement of Congress in resolving deadlocked elections. Obviously, having the electors meet in the national capital or some other single venue could have permitted the electors to choose a president by means of an exhaustive ballot without congressional involvement but the framers were dissuaded from such an arrangement by two major considerations. First, it would have been quite burdensome for electors from distant states to travel to the national capital using 18th century means for the sole purpose of electing the president, since they were to be barred from simultaneously serving in the federal government in any other capacity, electors would likely have no other reason to go there. But probably even more importantly, many framers genuinely feared that if the electors met in a single venue, especially under the initial assumption that they would act independently as opposed to being bound to vote for particular candidates, they would be vulnerable to the influence of mobs who might try to ensure a particular result by means of threats and intimidation. This had been a fairly common occurrence in European elections for powerful officials by relatively small constituencies, for example, and perhaps in particular, in papal elections, from the Middle Ages up to the Constitution's creation. 
the Twelfth Amendment introduced a number of important changes to the procedure. Now, electors do not cast two votes for president, rather, they cast one vote for president and another for vice president. In case no presidential candidate receives a majority, the House chooses from the top three, not five, as before the Twelfth Amendment. The amendment also requires the Senate to choose the vice president from those with the two highest figures if no vice presidential candidate receives a majority of electoral votes, rather than only if there's a tie for second for president. It also stipulates that to be the vice president, a person must be qualified to be the president. Clause 4, Election Day. The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors, and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. Congress sets a national election day. Currently, electors are chosen on the Tuesday following the first Monday in November, the first Tuesday after November 1st, in the year before the president's term is to expire. The electors cast their votes on the Monday following the second Wednesday in December, the first Monday after December 12th, of that year. Thereafter, the votes are opened and counted by the vice president, as president of the Senate, in a joint session of Congress. Clause 5, Qualifications for Office. Section 1 of Article 2 of the United States Constitution sets forth the eligibility requirements for serving as President of the United States. No person except a natural-born citizen, or a citizen of the United States, at the time of the adoption of this Constitution, shall be eligible to the office of President, neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years, and been 14 years a resident within the United States. At the time of taking office, the President must be a natural-born citizen, or they became a citizen before September 17, 1787. At least 35 years of age. An inhabitant of the United States for at least 14 years. A person who meets the above qualifications, however, may still be constitutionally barred from holding the office of president under any of the following conditions. Article I, Section 3, Clause 7, gives the U.S. Senate the option of forever disqualifying anyone convicted in an impeachment case from holding any federal office. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits anyone who swore an oath to support the Constitution, and later rebelled against the United States, from becoming president. However, this disqualification can be lifted by a two-thirds vote of each House of Congress. The 22nd Amendment prohibits anyone from being elected to the presidency more than twice, or once if the person serves as president or acting president for more than two years of a presidential term to which someone else was originally elected. Middle. Clause 6, Vacancy and Disability. In case of the removal of the president from office, or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president, and the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation or inability, both of the president and vice president, declaring what officer shall then act as president, and such officer shall act accordingly, until the disability be removed, or a president shall be elected. Note, this clause was partially superseded by the 25th Amendment in 1967. The wording of this clause caused much controversy at the time it was first used. When William Henry Harrison died in office, a debate arose over whether the vice president would become president, or if he would just inherit the powers, thus becoming an acting president. Harrison's vice president, John Tyler, believed that he had the right to become president. However, many senators argued that he only had the right to assume the powers of the presidency long enough to call for a new election. Because the wording of the clause is so vague, it was impossible for either side to prove its point. Tyler took the oath of office as president, setting a precedent that made it possible for later vice presidents to ascend to the presidency unchallenged following the president's death. The Tyler precedent established that if the president dies, resigns or is removed from office, the vice president becomes president. 
the Congress may provide for a line of succession beyond the Vice President. The current Presidential Succession Act establishes the order as the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the President pro tempore of the Senate and then the 15 Cabinet Secretaries in order of each department's establishment. There are concerns regarding the constitutionality of having members of Congress in the line of succession, however, as this clause specifies that only an officer of the United States may be designated as a presidential successor. Constitutional scholars from James Madison to the present day have argued that the term officer excludes members of Congress. The 25th Amendment explicitly states that if the president dies, resigns or is removed from office, the vice president becomes president, and also establishes a procedure for filling a vacancy in the office of the vice president. The amendment further provides that the president, or the vice president and cabinet, can declare the president unable to discharge his or her duties, in which case the vice president becomes acting president. If the declaration is done by the vice president and cabinet, the amendment permits the president to take control back, unless the vice president and cabinet challenge the president and two-thirds of both houses vote to sustain the findings of the vice president and cabinet. If the declaration is done by the president, he or she may take control back without risk of being overridden by the Congress. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.